You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is May 26th, Friday, Friday before Memorial Day, so it's a big travel weekend. We took a week off from recording uh, because I was in London with my wife and our friends. Uh, had a great time, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in, in a little bit. But in the meantime, uh, the markets have been moving quite interestingly, and we'll go through that in further detail. Um, the debt ceiling uh, deadline of early June is approaching. It's um, right now. It's May twenty sixth. Sounds like we sounds like we have a have some sort of a deal there. Yeah, the markets seem um, to be responding accordingly. Disclosed. The markets are up right now about a one percent. Um, so yeah, so we'll see. It looks like there hopefully compromise occurs because otherwise there'd be chaos on that for sure. So a lot of things happening. And and, and Doug, so give me give me the sort of ten thousand foot overview of way, the way you see things right now. Um, and what's driving the market. And we talked about briefly about the debt ceiling, but go into that a little bit in more detail and just let me know what your opinion opinion is on everything. Yeah. Um, well, I think the most interesting thing is that I'm looking at the S&P 500 since the beginning of the year. Um, we're at exactly at 4,200 right now in the S&P. On February 2nd, uh, we were at 4,180. Uh, imagine, I mean, just think about what's happened over the last three months since the beginning of February, specifically, um, you know, bank failures being number one, uh, you know, inflation being a lot uh, like stronger than the Federal Reserve had predicted, and a lot of that we've talked about, driven by sort of uh, a arbitrary uh, rent figure, and then um, increases in in the Fed funds rate beyond where. Um, sort of we, you and I pegged that we, we thought they should stop. But it's just crazy that um, the market really hasn't moved. Going back to August of last year, August 2022, uh, the market was at at 4,200. Uh, this time last year, May of 22, uh, market was at just about 4,200. So there's been so much volatility. And if you go back to 2021, April 12th, I'm looking at the, the Yahoo Finance app, April 12th, 2021, so two year, two, over two years ago, Mark was forty one eighty five, which is basically where it is right now. Of course, it went higher than that. Yeah. Uh, subsequently, it's like so much. So much has happened in the last two years, and uh, with no movement. And I, I, this reminds me of now. There was there was so much different uh, instances and situations in earlier in the twenty tens. But remember 2014, 2015 uh, period where the market literally went sideways for two years and then 2016, 2017 just sort of rocketed up. It was like a, it was like a spring that was constricted and then just completely, um, exploded in 16 and 17. Not that, not to say that there's, um, any similarities coming out of a sort of a consolidation period, but, um, it is pretty amazing how the market goes through these periods of heightened volatility, but really nothing from a return perspective for long periods of time, and then just springboards. And uh, and uh, this is a, a similar sort of setup that uh, we had in sort of the mid 2010s. Yeah, and also similar to that point in time too. The like the the breadth issue that we've talked about, meaning like right now the the top 
stocks in the S P five hundred, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, et cetera, Meta, which is the the new name for Facebook and its subsidiaries. Those companies are driving the market, and the same thing was happening at that point in time. I remember talking about that extensively because what would happen is is that if you looked at a diversified portfolio of mid-cap stocks, small-cap stocks, you would have been best better off just buying the big-cap, large, uh, blue-chip U.S. stocks. Because those, are, those were, at that point in time, what was driving the market, and the same thing is happening right now as well, too. Yeah, uh, you know, four hundred and ninety-three of the S and P five hundred stocks that are basically flat on the year, and what the, those seven, you know, the Fang stocks, what are they up year to date? Uh, they're the overall market is up nine to ten percent year to date, and the four ninety-three are up one percent. So, I mean, those are dropped like probably twenty to thirty at that point. In that case, the other thing that's I think is interesting and uh, I think a lot of this, in my view, is driven by how the dollar has become weaker since October, but international markets are doing quite well over the last uh, six months. If you look at the international index from the start of the year, uh, and I'm looking at iShares Core MSCI EFA, which is sort of developed U.S., up to eight, is up 8.26% year to date. I mean, developed international is up 8.26% year to date. Uh, really, over the last six months is... Uh, is doing better than the general market in the U.S. And a lot of that, I, I think, is driven by a weakening dollar. But if you look since uh, since October, when markets really bottomed, to 2022, uh, IEFA was at it was at about $52 a share. It's at 67 now, so 67 over 52, up 28, 29 percent in price, uh, not including dividends since uh, markets bottomed last year and uh, the, the other component to that, too, is that the valuations are just less expensive internationally than the U.S. So you have sort of a weakening dollar and a better valuation set up. And so a diversified U.S. international portfolio, specifically if, uh, if you don't own those big mega cap tech stocks in the U.S., uh, international component of the portfolio has been a ballast um, to, to help with sort of a diversified um, growth set up and, and uh, a stock portfolio. So uh, anyway, markets uh, have responded well, despite all of the craziness that we've experienced for the last really two years with the uh, S&P 500 being flat over that time frame. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, it is amazing. And some of the narratives that have been driving the market, like inflation, the Fed, et cetera, seem to be um, going into the rearview mirror. Uh, if you look at the government's reported inflation numbers from last month, it's at like 4.9% or something like that. We've referenced trueflation several times on this podcast in past episodes. Trueflation is a real-time look at inflation, whereas the government's looking in the rearview mirror and taking into uh, account calculus or calculi that are really stale, like owner's equivalent rent that we've talked about, which is really just lagging. And if you look at trueflation, the government says – uh, 4.9 trueflation says 2.8 percent. So I think that 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 narrative is really going to continue to change. And some of the things that were really like exploding in price, like lumber, eggs, etc., have just fallen off of a cliff from a price standpoint. The price of a dozen eggs wholesale right now, I think, is like 78 cents. It got up to five dollars a dozen uh, wholesale uh, at one point in time. 
So those, these, a lot of these things that are really supply chain driven or just exogenous type of events like the war in Russia or the bird flu or whatever seem to be moderating. And I think that we're going to be talking about something else. And that, that really provides a sort of springboard. Um, hopefully, we have that sort of springboard like we had in the 2017, 2018 timeframe that you're talking about. But there's, there's starting to be more talk from um, uh, some major economists uh, like Jurian Timmer, who, Doug, I want you to talk about in a second, related to the potential um, foundational work behind it, the, a potential new bull market. So to, let me know what uh, Timmer said and let me know what your thoughts are about his uh, prognostication. Yeah, so this is, uh, so, and we've talked about Yuri in the past, but he's the, um, is a chief strategist or chief economist or one of those two at Fidelity. Um, he, he tweeted this, how to think like a bull these days, figure, interest rates have peaked, the Fed is done, the economy is holding up, and earnings will rebound later this year, with history showing that price often leads earnings by two to three quarters at inflection points. It would make sense for the bull market to, to start declaring itself now. The bull arrives when the rate of change in valuation crosses over to the positive side, and he references a chart below, even as earnings growth continues to weaken, but not by too much. That's your bullish playbook. It would be easier to believe it if anything besides the nifty 50 was doing well. And, and so what, what Yuri is talking about, and, and I've gotten this question a lot, is, is how can you be uh, bullish in a market when you know, countless earnings calls uh, with analysts for public companies are revisions to earnings to the downside? So you have uh, you know, companies that that project earnings earlier in the year, uh, analysts sort of try to hold them to that earnings projection. And then when they have their quarterly update calls, they revise those up or down. And for the most part, um, there's been some downward rev revisions just related to expectations of a slowdown in the economy, increased costs specifically related to labor. And last year was a lot of labor and supply chain issues. But bottom line is estimates of the S&P 500 in aggregates total earnings have been declining. How can you be bullish for in that particular situation? And when, what Urian's really saying is that the market sniffs that out. And what 20, the year 2022 was a year potentially a year in which the market sniffed out weakening earnings in 2023 with a rebound to come in 24 and beyond. And if that's the setup, then the market will predict a rebound in earnings starting next year and, and the and uh, basically earnings will follow that sort of price movement. And so if, uh, if sort of past equals future, then the setup on a go forward basis is that, um, you know, weakening earnings through this year is not necessarily a negative so long as there's a rebound in earnings next year and the, and the market will uh, respond accordingly. Right. It also goes to the point that people say, okay, well, I'm going to wait until things recover before I buy into the stock market. And we hear that all the time because that's just a human psychology thing where you see, the world ending and recession indicators, et cetera, on the horizon. The, but in actuality, we should be doing is, and what the market does is it looks past those points in time um, and looks at uh, cycles, et cetera. So essentially, what we should be doing is buying into the buying into the uncertainty. Um, when there's a down period in time in the markets, usually it's followed by an up period. Uh, bear markets move in cycles. Usually, bear markets take about one year to go down. One year to recover what they um, what they lost. 
really bad bear markets take a one or a little bit more than that, a couple of years to go down, a couple of years to come back up. But if history is any guide, um, hopefully we will. We're already right, like we talked about previously. It's been a couple of years, really. Um, the markets haven't done anything, so uh, one would think that you know the the markets should recover. And like I said, if history is any guide, they probably will, just from a cycle standpoint. Yeah, and I I, I sort of let, I mean, I, you, of course, you'd prefer a sideways market than a big downward bear market. Even though I mean, we've had a couple twenty plus percent declines in the last, uh, specifically in the last year. But um, but really, what what this what happens when you have these sideways markets? And that, and if you know companies are successful, then they grow earnings over time. You may have a, a year like 2023 in which you have a flat or a down year in earnings, but over time, earnings will grow. And so, what happens is, if you have a market that's on the high side of it from a valuation perspective, so for example, um, like let's say an average uh, historical price to earnings ratio in the market is 17. 18 times, uh, 25 year average here from JP Morgan is 16.8 times. In 2021, it got north of 20 times. It was 22 times earnings. And so, uh, so what you get when you have t- a couple of years of no growth in the markets, but still have positive earnings growth over that period, is you get a consolidation or a sort of a downtrend in the price to earnings multiple. So we've gone from uh, you know, 22 times earnings to 18 times earnings, still slightly above historical averages, but more in line with fair value, just by simply the market doing nothing, zero return, but earnings have grown. And so if you go through another period like this, or another year where maybe you have a, in 2024, you have earnings, expected earnings growth, you just get that more consolidation from a price to earnings ratio. And so you get you get entry into the market at a better valuation by simply having flat growth uh, in the price of the S and P five hundred. So these period, these consolidation periods are, uh, I, I generally like them from the perspective of it brings valuations back in line without having a a you know rip roaring uh, bear market to deal with. Which um, we definitely had volatility, but we haven't had. You know that two thousand or two thousand and eight type period, and right, and hopefully, and the good thing if you look at a glass half full uh, perspective about this particular period of time in the bond market, yields have gone up, which has obviously not been great if you've owned a lot of long term bonds. But for prospective return assumptions, now you can buy a ten year treasury at four percent in round numbers versus what you were able to buy it two years ago, which was basically nothing. Um, So. There's a lot of different ways to look at it from an equity um, perspective. The consolidation that's taking place means that the, the price to earnings ratio right now is back to historical norms. And theoretically, the returns should be higher on the stock side of the equation. But all, the same thing is also transpired on the bond side of the equation. So prospective returns on a balanced portfolio like 60-40 stock to bond should be great going forward. And they're a lot higher than they would be uh, or what the, what the prognosticators were expecting. Um, two or three years ago, before this period of time took place. Yeah, so I want to take a step back, and I, I haven't asked you about your your trip. The, the the one thing I think is the most underrated component of being able to go to London from New Orleans is the direct flight, and it makes me so jealous of people that live in sort of these hub cities of like Dallas or Atlanta or Houston, where they can get anywhere in the world. Uh, nonstop, but just tell me. Let's take five minutes and talk about London and 
and maybe think of, talk about it from the perspective of, of somebody that's an economic observer and vibrancy. You know, there's these anecdotes that you see, you know, airports and restaurants, cafes, cities in terms of the traffic and how that you can make sort of an anecdotal uh, prediction of economic growth just based upon seeing people spending money. So tell me about the so, trip. The first off, the flight to London, like you mentioned, having a nonstop flight is amazing. It was we went, we got, we boarded the flight at like nine thirty, took off nine thirty on a Wednesday night, and we woke up at twelve o'clock in London. Um, it was a uh, the vibrancy of the city was really something that was we noticed right off the bat. The restaurants were full, bars were full. The, it's really the the people themselves are great. We went to a soccer game, which was awesome. We went and see, saw Tottenham play. Brentford and Tottenham was was uh, was favored. Um, they have the, Harry Kane, who's a famous uh, English soccer player, and scored who scored against the United States in the World Cup. Uh, it was really fun to see the fans, though. I mean, that we sat behind the Brentford section, and they were chanting curse words, et cetera, at the Tottenham fans, which is just really it's a whole different level of fandom. I really enjoyed speaking with the cab drivers, which I've been to London in the past, and that was one of my favorite things. Is they're just it's like a it's like a known thing that the cab drivers there just love to chit chat and are really pleasant. The um, as far as the the sort of any sort of recessionary indicators that may exist, they certainly don't exist in the sort of high end areas in London in which we saw the restaurants and bars and the plant. The airport was as full as it possibly could have been. The hotel we stayed at was was completely full. Um, from a from a uh, travel standpoint, for cost standpoint, being a American tourist going to Europe is is still re- offers a tremendous value. We were talking with our older brother who recently went to Cabo and stayed at a five star hotel, and he said he paid seventy five dollars for a margarita at these hotels. So they're catering to American tourists, um, That's and insane. the prices are ridiculous. Yeah. It's insane, right? And he said $50 quesadilla, $75 margarita. And he's, granted, he went to an incredible resort. But it's, it just seems like it takes the enjoyment factor out of it. Whereas if we went to places in London that were really high-end, beautiful settings, martinis, et cetera, costs were comparable to what you would find in New Orleans, which is obviously a much smaller city on a relative scale. Now, if you look at the real estate, et cetera, in London, you can see that that's, that, that's basically uh, – analogous to like a, a Los Angeles, New York, Miami, where they have all these people from uh, foreign countries that look to park money in a secure asset. And so the prices of real estate there are just out of exorbitant. Like we looked at this one area um, and that like the property, the nicest property was in like the 30 or $40 million range. Um, so you're dealing with like Middle Eastern Jesus. people that are trying to park money in a secure environment. Um, people from uh, autocratic regi- regimes, most likely they're just trying to hide money essentially. Um, but anyway, we had a great time. Yeah, it's ba- basically, the yeah the uh, what was formerly Russian oligarchs that were utilizing uh, London as a as a safe haven. It's now shifted to sort of your uh, Middle Eastern Saudi Qatari. Exactly the the, you know, the hotel of, we yeah. stayed at. The next door, they were renovating a Rosewood hotel, and it was done is being done by the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund. So they that, they view that as a safe place to internationally is a safe place to to uh, to park money essentially i would absolutely go back i really my favorite part about europe and gen and we we experienced this in london was is the cafe culture i love sitting outside having a glass of wine and how was the weather the weather was like 65 degrees and sunny it was perfect oh, yeah great. so anyway it was yeah. 
we went to the British Museum, which was super cool, and got to see. I'm, I like history, and so we got to see the uh, Rosetta Stone and a bunch of other different artifacts from like the Assyrians and stuff. Um, times were a lot different back then. You, like the Assyrian exhibit had like lion hunts and and uh, what they it was basically stone carvings that these that these Assyrians had done like three thousand years ago, and uh, and uh, depictions of their battle techniques. It was not a pretty world. Um, back then we're living in a great time, even though everybody doesn't seem to be real happy <laughs> at any given point in time, but it's certainly right. better than it was, uh, 3000 years ago as depicted by those tablets. Um, but it was a fun trip. Um, and we had a great time. It's all, it's always good for you and I are both in a, a similar uh, life stage with young children to, to go somewhere with your wife and, uh, and have some quiet time where you can sleep in and go out to dinners later and all that kind of stuff. It was a great time. So. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah, would love to do it. Um, and I, I think that you know, being able to go anywhere nonstop, um, just a lot, especially when you have young kids and you need, you don't want to spend your, you know, half your trip traveling. And so, right. go to uh, bed on a plane and wake up and you're there, and so you don't. Right. right. The, so, gr- anyway, highly recommend. I think you should do that as well too. I know that Sarah has some some experience there and some friends there, or, or used to have some friends there. So I think you guys should definitely go back. You would totally enjoy it. Um, but anyway, I I want to I want to leave I want to sh- shift gears and talk about some uh, some interesting things I saw um, on uh, on the fortunes and the misfortunes associated with wealth and and some things that can um, can in hindsight look a little crazy. So first off, I mentioned soccer briefly. That that the if you talk to any younger person like like eight twelve year old kids or whatever. They're huge soccer fans. They, like I talked to some my son and his friends before we went. My son's eight years old, and they knew the soccer players for these English Premier League teams. So I think that soccer, if you look at the, the age demographics for baseball or whatever, the average baseball fan is like a 60-year-old guy. But soccer, on the other hand, is, is very popular amongst the younger people. And so I think that's going to continue to be um, something that's going to be evident as time goes on, that that's going to become a more popular sport uh, in the U.S., and you've got the World Cup coming here now. Right, that's going to be right. awesome. I'm yeah. definitely going to go see some games when that comes in town. But as I saw this recently, that Saudi Arabia, so uh, Lionel Messi is the one of the, one of the best soccer players in the world. He, he he's the be- best of all time. But presently, he's on he's like 35, 36, so he's past his prime. Um, but he is in negotiations with the with the Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is trying to to shed the the um, the reputation of a um, autocratic re- regime and uh, with MBS, et cetera. But they're they're trying to to uh, encourage tourism, foster tourism, et cetera, foster culture. Like they bought that that um, Da Vinci a while back. Um, uh, yeah, and like live golf, live golf, right? But they're they're in negotiations with uh, Lionel Messi right now, who's the the star of the World Cup, won the World Cup this past year, is an Argentinian guy for four hundred million dollars a year. This is per Bloomberg Middle East to spend the twilight of his soccer career paying, playing there, which is would be the, by far the the highest um, uh, sporting annual contract ever. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that, Doug, and then I'll shift gears to somebody who does not did not do so good in hindsight making a financial decision. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wonder what the the caveat is there. Uh, I mean, other than having to live in in uh, you know Saudi, but. It's just absolutely crazy. I, I wonder what his what Lionel's net worth is, but it seems like um, 
you know, so long as you don't have to be sort of a spokesperson for the government and if you're just playing on a team, um, then it seems like a pretty good deal to me. I, I would, uh, um, so I don't know what he would be making in like, let's say he played for Barcelona. He's, again, he's been playing for Paris Saint-Germain recently and I don't know what yeah, he's so making there, but pro probably hundred million dollars. Probably 40 or 50 yeah. million bucks. So yeah, I mean, you know, you well, make hay while the sun shining so long as it doesn't really, um, impact any sort of moral issues just by you being on a team i don't think there's a, an issue there i think the same thing as it relates to live golf although there's some there's some golf purists um out there and i and i'm a, a fan of the pga tour i'm not really a fan of live but you know if, you, if you're if you're phil mickelson and you're gonna get a 250 million dollar check just to join a new tour while you're already on the the twilight of your career it's like you know there's you're, you're not you're not in agreement with that government just because you play on a tour that they've They've uh, financially back. Yep. So Lionel Messi is doing good. He's going to probably be one of the richest Argentinians, or if not the the richest Argentinian, um, which is pretty crazy as a sports player to be. Yeah. Hopefully they don't pay him in uh, in pesos. <laughs> right. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four hundred million become two hundred million in like a week and twelve. Right, months. Yeah. That happens. Over yeah. There. It's not. That's a no bueno, as as they say down there. So um, uh, anyway, the Lionel Messi is looking good. I saw something briefly about this. This is the story I've I've read about and in detail, but I just wanted to, to uh, echo this, the sentiments of this individual um, who made a poor financial decision, but obviously everything's 2020 in hindsight. And this guy probably did need his $800. Um, but Ronald G. Wayne, um, this is in, uh, in, in 1976, sold his 10% stake in Apple to uh, Steve Wozniak, the Woz, and Steve Jobs for $800. Um, what mm -hmm. is 10% of Apple worth today, Doug? Uh, what? $3 trillion. Of three, <laughs> yeah, 300, 300 mil, billion dollars. Right, exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's like the guy that paid for uh, pizza with, uh, you know, 10,000 Bitcoin or something like right. that. Yeah, or the, <laughs> or the like the Facebook chef that got paid in, in equity instead of in, in cash or whatever. So, yeah, there's a right. lot of people that made... Good. You hear about the, the the story, the good stories. But we want to share one that I'm sure this guy's probably had to to spend more than eight hundred dollars talking to a therapist about this particular There's decision. No about that. Um, but anyway, we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast, and we'll wrap it up with that. Um, and then we hope you have an enjoyable Memorial Day weekend. Um, thoughts are with the uh, the veterans who who sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And we hope you guys um, enjoy time with your families this weekend. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice.
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.